Hello, Internet. Mike here from the World Vox headquarters in Columbus, Ohio, the suburban suburban Columbus, Ohio, mind you. Um, Andy is uh, on vacation this week. Um, I don't know why, but uh, he somehow thinks that he needs some rest. No, I'm not sure. He only has three kids and uh, carries like two different jobs, but no worries. I, I think I can handle it. Um, I want to I wanna just say thank you to all of you who have emailed, all of you who have been praying, all of you who have still supported us on Patreon uh, for your kindness in the midst of all this transition. It has been um, uh, hard but good, and uh, we, we very much miss our friends in California. We very much miss Vox. And um, I'm recording this on a Sunday. I get to teach later in the community via Skype, so I'm excited about that. Uh, but I wanted to um, take a break from Sex, Love, God, and uh, I wanted to today, if, if you'll indulge me, um, to revisit the, the Nashville Statement on Sexuality. We recorded a podcast on it a couple weeks ago, um, but I've been, I've been kind of stewing on this thing and, and wondering why, why it chafes so much at me. Um, I, you know, I, we don't need to revisit some of the the critiques. I mean, um, it was funny. One of the signers came out uh, a couple days ago and said, you know, there are four kinds of responses: uh, those who are certain of the Nashville statement's rightness and who um, uh, out, are outspoken about supporting it; those who are reticent about its rightness and who would be uncomfortable saying it. Those uncertain about its rightness, uh, without yet knowing why, who would be uncomfortable saying it, and those certain of its wrongness, who would be determined to repudiate it. And um, so he said those are the kind of the four responses. And uh, somebody on Twitter said, no, there, there's actually another response, and I fall into this camp. Those concerned that its rightness in some aspects, in some aspects, uh, is so overshadowed by its wrongness in others that it's impossible to support in its current form. And uh, we've got a lot of, you know, conversation about either uh, coming out and reputing every article uh, of this thing or coming out and supporting it. And again, it's just so much more nuanced than that. I absolutely hate um, in this, and, and there is there is a good thing to come from this, and that is that it forces. Christians to clarify uh, their stance on this issue. For for so often, um, it's just been don't ask, don't tell, not just in the military, but in our churches. And um, yes, we know there are LGBTQ people in our communities, but as long as they don't, you know, as long as they don't identify themselves, then we're okay with having them there. And um, we've got to move beyond that sort of posture. Um, and so in one sense, the state, this statement helps um, clarify, solidify. It certainly stirs debate, um, but I just think it, you know, at the end of the day, and, and, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on these critiques because I think we already hit them. At the end of the day, I think it, it already, it, it causes greater pain around an already complex and painful issue, and I think it really hurts um, uh, our ability to build bridges with the LGBTQ community. I don't know how it helps parents whose son or daughter comes home and says, you know, I'm, I'm gay. Um, how, how does that help? Do you, you just read the affirmations and the denials and, and that settles the issue? Um, I, moreover, it doesn't, 
um, I don't think it does anything except convince those who are already convinced and, and further solidify those who are already opposed. I think the statement is, is out of character uh, with the way Jesus did his ministry. And um, uh, it's, it's, I don't see that the statement is much different than just Westboro Baptist Church, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, picketing funerals. I mean, you just launch a statement, say it's only for the church, but you make sure they're press releases and you make a huge deal out of it. It just feels like it's more kind of fodder for the culture war. Um, God's truth always has to be expressed with God's heart. And, um, and I get that, you know, this is a, uh, in keeping with the great creeds, which I think is silly to frame it that way, but in keeping with the great creeds of the, the Christian faith, um, you know, it's, it's not going to be um, a heart sort of document, but I think, it, I think it should be. And it's precisely because it's not that um, I can't support it in any way, shape, or form. Because the church can either be known by its love or its declarations. And uh, we've declared so much. Um, and our, declare, our declarations are falling on deaf ears because um, our love is simply not felt, not in existence, not really shown. Um, because we've abandoned any sense of moral authority. Um, this document, as we said before, didn't confess our shortcomings, didn't address other sexual sins, didn't uh, acknowledge our contribution to the mess. Um, and frankly, uh, the more college students I talk to, uh, the more I realize that um, because the narrative out there is that 83% of evangelicals voted for Trump, um, who you know clearly is uh, not a moral person. Um, uh, I think that we've lost any, and, and several of the signers of this Nashville statement were outspoken Trump supporters. I just think in the eyes of, of the generations behind us, we've lost any and every sense of moral authority uh, to speak on sexual issues because we've been so supportive of of, uh, of Trump and his excesses. And so I see the, the primary failure of this document is not theological, although I would certainly disagree with some of the articles, no question about it. But it's primarily one of, um, of uh, pastoral. It's not a theological failure, it's a pastoral failure. And um, I, I just think that these issues are pastoral issues. When you sit down with real people sitting in the midst of these real issues, wrestling with real questions, um, and having definitely indefinite real experiences, um, uh, theological clarity um, can easily, easily um, be the focus. And um, you know, making sure that we let the, those people know that we don't agree. Uh, but I just don't see the scriptures playing out um, or the ministry of Jesus playing out that way. I mean, it, it is so clear. I mean, uh, right doctrine without love is absolutely nothing. And people will say, and this is what I want to kind of go after today. People will say, yeah, but uh, the most loving thing we can do uh, is tell people the truth. And that is the, the piece of of. of I wanted to say garbage, but it's sometimes it's true. Absolutely. A doctor who's diagnosing a disease, sure, the loving thing is to tell the truth. I got it. But the way Christians use that statement, the most loving thing we can do is tell people the truth, is, um, is actually unloving. 
and uh, refutes itself in the way that that statement's used. And so uh, I want to cover some stuff that um, uh, we've covered in bits and pieces before, but I think it's absolutely critical to understand uh, because we we have this we have this you know this idea of, of speaking truth in love, or the most loving thing we can do for a person is to speak truth to them. And um, and the word love is so confusing because uh, love can mean um, affection towards, love can mean commitment to, love can mean uh, something I prefer, love can mean tolerance and acceptance without, you know, un- without unquestioning uh, tolerance or acceptance, um, without conditions. Um, it can mean a lot of different things. And so I want to talk a bit about how the scriptures paint love and um, and use this idea of a Nashville of the Nashville statement as 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 an example of how not to love our neighbors uh, or how not to love and serve the culture. So I hope you're following along with that train of thought. Consider this in my usual rambly way, the suburban Columbus, Ohio statement in refutation of the Nashville statement. Um, that that sounds pretty official, I think. Um, so first, Love is utterly and absolutely the center of the Christian life. Rightness is not the um, center of the Christian life. Now, rightness in the scriptures should always lead to love. So you have just tons and tons and tons of, um, of verses in the scriptures that talk about the centrality of love in the Christian life. And... Um, and so what I, what I want to do is I want to just bombard you a little bit. Um, uh, let me see here. I'm trying to find it. I have this list of, um, let's see. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There we go. Uh, list of um, just a quick summary of how central love is to the Christian life, right? So Jesus, of course, in Matthew Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law, first five books of the Bible, and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Um, So love is the center of the Christian life. Luke 6. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But you should love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind uh, to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So it's not just um, love your neighbor, but, but it turns out to be love your enemy, love those who aren't like you, love those you disagree with, love those you can't stand, right? I mean, love turns out to be a much larger category. Uh, Romans 13, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. And then, and then he says this really crazy thing, Paul does. Uh, he says the commands, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, or in Galatians, in Jesus Christ, 
Um, circumcision or uncircumcision, which were Jewish boundary markers, has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Um, the whole law, he says later in Galatians, is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, First Corinthians, do everything in love. Colossians, bear with each other, forgive one another, um, uh, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Or, and Paul couldn't say this any more clearly, if I have spiritual experiences and speak in tongues, uh, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So, so you can be. So he's saying you can be right. You can have and possess all truth, but if you do, if you lack love, you have nothing. There is no doubt. Utterly and absolutely, love is the center of the Christian life. End of story. Now, we've made doctrine the center of the Christian life. And, and I understand that. And doctrine plays a huge, huge piece uh, of understanding who Christ is and what Christ has done. But love, only love summarizes the entire law because love expresses the totality of God's will for us. Um, the, you know, we are to love indiscriminately, love neighbor and enemy, um, which pretty much sums up every, every person out there. Um, but the issue, I, I think the, the bigger issue for me is, um, what, what exactly does that mean to love my neighbor? What, how does that, or love my enemy or, or, or love if I'm, if I'm somebody who is, uh, an affirmer of the theology of the Nashville statement, what does that mean to love the culture and to love the church and to love my neighbor as myself? And, um, and, you know, back to doctrine, doctrine, um, it should lead to love. And if it doesn't, then that doctrine isn't uh, good doctrine. It, it may be right doctrine, but it's not being absorbed in a way that transforms the heart of the person believing it into what it is that Christ would have for us. And so we just think we can stop it being right. Um, and the scripture could not be more clear. Um, the only point in being right is to understand who Jesus is, how Jesus loves, and then to become like that. So, when we talk about love, we have to understand what it is. So we can speak of it as an emotional response. We can speak of it as a dopamine release. We can speak of it as euphoria. We, we, we have this, you know, the same word, L-O-V-E, um, to capture my love of ice cream, my love of the Buckeyes, the love of my wife, my love of my kids. And it's just not precise enough these days. Um, to simply say, well, the most loving thing we can do is to tell people the truth. That's assuming a definition of love that I think is at odds a little with how, what the scriptures teach. So, the scriptures teach um, that love is defined ultimately by how God treats us. If you want to know what love is, you look at Jesus, you look at the heart of the Father. And that's what love is. Love is um, a verb. Um, love is something that is done not just something that is felt. And so what I want to do is I just want to, and this is something Scott McKnight, who is one of my favorite scholars, um, he put together in his book uh, called A Fellowship of Difference. And uh, maybe you've heard this before, but he, he identifies 
God's love is covenantal love. And he puts several words attached to what covenantal love means. Now, we've talked a lot about the difference between contractual love and covenantal love. Contractual love is love based on mutual benefit, derived from mutual satisfaction, and is ended once that mutual benefit decreases. Uh, Covenantal love is love regardless. It's love in spite of. It's love... Love that's never going away, and um, and so so McKnight and I'm adapting what he does, but he he talks about okay if if love is the center of the Christian life, point one, point two is love is defined by how God treats us and loves us, and that love is a covenantal love. What does that mean? And then he identifies several kind of uh, statements for to be precise, and I, I kind of adapt him here. Um, he says, love is uh, a covenantal commitment to another person. Um, it's a commitment to be with another person. Um, it is a commitment to be for another person. And it is a commitment toward the best uh, of another person or for the best of the other person. And so so these, these words, the to, the with, the for, and the toward, are the words, the covenantal words that that um, God kind of exhibits and displays in the scriptures and invites us then to imitate. So, love is a covenantal commitment to another. Um, so, the, the key word there is commitment. It's not an affection. It's not something that comes and goes. It's a commitment. And so, so love, God's love for us is displayed, of course, in the sacrifice of Jesus. It's not just that God loves us, but that God showed he loves us. So, this is how we know what love is. First John, Jesus Christ laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Later in First John, lo- let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, whoever does not love, does not know God, because God is love. Later in 1 John, this is how God showed his love. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice. Or Romans, um, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. So, so the first big point is that love is a commitment to another. And the key word there is commitment to, uh, and it's so it's an action word. It's a, it's not just a feeling. It's not something that come and go comes and goes. It's not something you fall out of or fall into. In the scriptures, it is painted as God's love caused him to act, and that is what love is. It is the acting on behalf of another. It is the commitment to another. The second point he makes: it's commitment to another, but it's commitment to be with another. And the commitment of presence. And you see this all over the scriptures, you know, where God keeps saying over and over again, I will be with you. I, you will be uh, my people. I will dwell with you. So he says, you know, in Exodus, uh, make me a tabernacle and I will dwell with them. And then he literally later, the book of Exodus ends with God, God's spirit um, and his glory kind of filling this tabernacle. The same, things ha- th- same thing happens in First Kings when he fills the temple. And then you have Jesus um, who literally um, tabernacles with us. He dwells with us in John chapter 1. Um, uh, not only that, but then uh, Jesus, as he's walking among us, says, it's good that I'm going away because I'm going to send 
the Spirit, the Comforter who will dwell in you. Um, Jesus ends the book of Matthew by saying, and, and, wi- and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So God's presence is one of his covenantal, that one of the covenantal aspects of love. It's not just a commitment to us based around an action, but it's a commitment to be with us. Um, and all over the scriptures, God's commitment to be with us is put on display. And, and in fact, you can actually see it get more and more intimate. It starts intimately in the garden where God walks among his people in the cool of the day. And it ends this way in the book of Revelation, where God dwells among his people. But after the entrance of sin and death, then you have God moving closer and closer. So it's it's God speaking from the heavens, and then it's God dwelling in a tent, and then it's dwelling in a temple, and then it's dwelling fully in a person, the person Jesus, and now it's God dwelling in us. I mean, God just keeps getting closer and closer and closer. That's the story, is God drawing near. So love is a commitment to another, and it's a commitment to be with another. And then thirdly, it's, it's to be uh, for another. For the welfare of another, it's um, the, the, one of the ways the scriptures put, put this uh, is that um, when God says, "I will be your God and you will be my people," uh, that is God's way of saying He is for them. He is for their blessing. He is for their flourishing. He is for them. And so Jeremiah, obey me, I will be your God, you will be my people. Ezekiel, they will be my people, I will be their God. Zechariah, uh, they will be my people, I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. Revelation, God's dwelling places with his people, he will dwell with them, they will be his people. God will be with them and be their God. Leviticus, I will walk among you and be your God, you will be my people. Over and over and over again, this phrase, I will be your God, you will be my people, you will be my people, I will be your God. That is God's way of saying he is for his people. That, that God is a God of blessing, God is a God of abundance, God is a God of flourishing, God is a God that wants the best for others. So it's he's committed to us and he's demonstrated that. He's committed to be with us and he's demonstrated that in the gift of his spirit. And, and his heart is for us. It's for our flourishing, for our benefits for our um, our rescue and renewal and transformation all right uh, and then lastly um, God's love is toward it, there's a towarding aspect to it and I know I'm inventing that word but love is a commitment toward toward the best for another and what I mean is this so so God's love isn't just a love that affirms everything about us. God's love is a love that that transforms us in the process of it. So, um, so like in, in the book of Romans, um, we know God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. Um, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So God's towardness is God's love, loving us toward and transforming us toward the image of Jesus. Or Second Corinthians puts it this way. Um, and we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. We are being transformed into his image. Uh, into ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. And so, so the idea is 
that God um, God loves people. He's it's a, he's commitment to them. He's a commitment to be with them. He has a commitment to be for them. And then that all of that loving um, uh, matures us and and transforms us into His likeness. Now we can see this in marriage, right? Marriage is by its virtue, but the virtue of, uh, of its very nature. Um, it, marriage is a transformative institution. It cannot help but change somebody who enters into it. Childbearing is the same sort of thing, right? And th- these are the closest analogs we have to covenantal love. The idea that you are ruthlessly committed to somebody, to be with somebody, to be for them, and that you're loving them towards something. So for my kids, um, you know, this, this, is a, this works out really easily, right? Um, I'm committed to them no matter what they do. Um, no matter who they turn out to be, I will always love them. There is, there's utterly no, you know, when the scripture said that nothing can separate us from God's love, I feel that way about my kids. Nothing can separate my love from them. End of story. They could be in jail. They, I mean, I will always love them simply in virtue of who they are as my children. Um, I am committed to be with them. I delight in them. I love being with them. Um, I, I will drive hours, you know, to come to the rescue. I will pick them up. I will drive them everywhere. You know, I mean, ultimately, um, uh, and they have to feel this, of course, but my desire is not just to, to love them and be committed to them, but to be with them in the journey, in every step of the journey. Um, my love is, is, is for them. It's for their happiness. It's for their flourishing. It's for their success. It's for their best. But, uh, but there is a towardness. I, I love them toward maturity, and I love them toward being uh, a, a Jesus follower. Even you know they have the the opportunity to reject that or to not be that. But my love has a towardness to it. it it's not just an acceptance. It's not just an um, uh, a commitment to be with and a commitment to them. But there's a towardness. There's a maturity that I I am loving them toward. So that love includes correction, of course. And this obviously is how the scripture paints the love of God. There's a, it's not just a lukewarm tolerance of anything, like he's some elderly sort of Santa Claus um, or grandfather who's just proud of us no matter what we do. Um, It's a ferocious love. It's a ruthless love. It's a transformative love. And it's a love that, that not only is a commitment to, a commitment to be for, and a commitment to be with, but there's a towardness to it. He's loving us toward something, which is Christ-likeness. In the same way, I'm loving my children toward something, which is maturity, which I have not yet myself embraced. So that's a bit difficult, but that's a different podcast. Um, there's uh, so, so, so if that's what love is like, all right? Here's the, the last point that McKnight, Scott McKnight makes. And this was the, the zinger that really got me. He said, the order of these loves, uh, of these aspects of love, I should say, is utterly important. In other words, until somebody knows that you are committed to them ruthlessly, you are committed to be with them, you are committed to be for them they will not receive any toarding, loving towards something as love. They will receive it instead as coercion. They will receive it as manipulation. And um, unless 
they feel, unless they, the, the context is one of, I'm committed to you regardless of whether or not you change. I'm committed or do whatever I want. I'm, I'm committed to you. I'm committed to be with you. I'm committed to be for you. End of story. If those other ruthless commitments are in place and are felt by the other person, then torting will feel like love. The reason my children receive my torting and again, I know that's not a word, but I hope you get what I'm saying. There's love orients us towards something. Um, the reason my kids can receive my torting um, is because we've worked hard at the other three to be with, to be for, uh, and, commitment, and committed to them. And so they can receive torting, although they don't like it all the time. They can receive it um, as an aspect of love because those other three aspects are already in place. So what's wrong with the statement, hey, the most loving thing we can do is tell them the truth, is that Jesus didn't operate that way. What Jesus did was embody the commitment to somebody, to be for somebody, to be with somebody, and then he would toward them. And when you drop a Nashville statement on an on a utterly complex issue full of hurt feelings and anger and polarization, and you draw a line in the sand and say, well, this is the Christian view, and if you don't buy this, you're not a Christian. Um, there, all that is is torting. There's no commitment to. There's no commitment to be with. There's no commitment to be for. There's nothing in there about wanting to bless gay people. There's nothing in there about wanting to be with them and to learn from them and to hear their experiences. There's nothing about our own humility uh, and our own failure to love well. There's just a document like this is nothing but torting. And torting, <laughs> I hate using this word. I don't have another one. And torting, if all, all torting is, uh, if it's just that, without any of the other commitments, it feels like manipulation, it feels like coercion, it feels ugly, and it feels mean. And so that's the problem I have with the Nashville Statement. It's like adopting a kid, and, and then before you do anything, um, you, before, I mean, you know, the, the, the people will tell you, I mean, we have friends who are foster adopting, and my goodness, is it brutal. Uh, it is so hard because there's this whole context that torting has to be done and you can't just bring them into your house and then expect them to obey your rules without any context, without any relationship, without any of the other uh, the aspects of love to be present. It just doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that in marriage. It doesn't work like that in parenting. It doesn't work like that in friendships. And it certainly does not work like that when you're dealing with issues that are so complex and so nuanced and so absolutely full of pain and hurt on so many sides and you just drop a statement on there and think you've done your Christian duty I tell you that is absolutely false and I know some of the signers of this document are full of this kind of love towards LGBTQ people absolutely but but it's hard for me to believe that most of them are and again that's a judgment on my part that I should repent of I got it but it I, but when I the thing I've been wrestling with is, okay, why, why does this tick me off so much, right? I mean, because on the one hand, it's not surprising that conservative Christians hold a conservative Christian view, right? Not surprising. So, uh, you know, on, it's kind of like we on, um, okay, yep, conservative Christians hold the conservative Christian view, and this particular brand of conservative Christianity holds a view that they've always thought was the correct one. Um... Okay, so no shock there, but but what was it that was so grating? Um, and and again, man, I I I am the chief of sinners. I am the biggest screw up in the room. I got it, but but I just think this hurts the cause so much more than it helps. 
and uh, because there's no there's no commitment to there's no commitment to be with there's no commitment to be for um, LGBTQ people there's just it's just a line in the sand um, and it's just torting yep this is what this is what our goal for you our goal is if you're gay you come to Jesus you repent you get straight or you or, or you're celibate the rest of your life and that's all that 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 document says it doesn't say about anything about what it would be like to call people to that about the resources uh, that those those kinds of people would need I mean it doesn't say anything about any of those sorts of things and so for for me man that's the the biggest failure of it Jesus did he simply did not love people this way yes he told the truth but he told the truth uh, without context to primarily the religious folks and so we talk a lot about, it's not just grace and truth, it's grace before truth. It's Jesus, his kindness leads us to repentance. It's the fact that he has loved us already that causes us to respond in kind. It's not that, uh, you know, if Jesus was just saying, well, I'll only love you if, um, see, I just think, I just think that's the, and, and, and the signers of this document will say, this is done in love. Absolutely, this is done in love. And, and I'm saying, listen, it's not love if it doesn't feel loved, uh, if, if the recipients of it don't feel loved. And as I've heard from folks in our community and, and um, you know, around other places, as people email and ask questions and direct message and whatever else, I mean, all this does is just stir up more pain. And so, um, you know, it's, it's two weeks later, no one's talking about it still. I even hesitated even going back to it just because I thought, ah, people have moved on. It didn't do, it didn't do anything. Um, but I, I thought it was a good example of, of why the statement, the most loving thing to do is to tell somebody the truth, isn't always true. And um, the most loving thing I can do is to tell those people the truth, and that is namely, you're not loving somebody by just simply telling them the truth. If you're just torting them, that's why you can't nag somebody into the kingdom, you can't criticize somebody into the kingdom, you can't guilt people into the kingdom. Jesus invited them with a picture of flourishing in God's good world, and that's why people came. Yes, he called them to repentance. Absolutely, we're all called to repentance. None of us, none of us gets, gets earning or meriting or deserving into the kingdom, of course. So there's repentance always. But how do you bring about that repentance? By just making statements or by actually getting in messy relationships with each other um, and recognizing that, you know, each one of us is the chief of sinners in our own eyes. And uh, out of that context, we love. And that love is, I'm for you, I'm with you, um, I'm committed to you, and then you and I help toward each other to Christ-likeness. I mean, that's what, that's how this is supposed to look. So anyway, my brothers and sisters, uh, I, I know Andy is missed. Um, uh, so this is an Andy-less version of the Suburban Columbus Statement against the Nashville Statement. And uh, so I'm going to sign it. I'm signing it right now verbally. I sign this statement. Um, and uh, I just think there's a better way. So, as always, food for thought. I am so blessed to be a part of um, the journey you're on. And uh, I very much look forward to getting back kind of on schedule. And we still have so many things to talk about. So, uh, thanks again. Your support, your kindness, your email, uh, your emails. Um, the stuff you post on Facebook, I mean, all of that means so much to us. So my brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and may he give you peace in these days. Until next time, my friends. Thanks. Hey, thanks for listening to the Vox Podcast. Learn more about us at voxpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at the Vox Podcast. And now support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash voxpodcast.